0: One question, four expert witnesses. Welcome to The Inquiry from the BBC World Service. Our podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: Welcome to The Inquiry on the BBC World Service with me, Gary O'Donoghue. One question, four expert witnesses and an answer. It's lunchtime on a recent Monday in Taiwan's capital, Taipei. It's time for the annual air raid drills, drills designed to prepare the population for a possible invasion by the island's superpower neighbour, China. At its closest point, it's roughly 100 kilometers across the Taiwan Strait. Mostly, people take the drill in their stride. After all, they've been happening for decades. But now, with a recent visit by Speaker of the US House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi, tensions are at their highest in more than a quarter of a century. America has accused China of dangerous military provocations in the region. China has warned the US not to play with fire. Add to all that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and concerns that China could be contemplating something similar in Taiwan, and it's time to ask the question... Will the US and China go to war over Taiwan? Part 1. Unfinished Revolution To understand why Taiwan has become such a flashpoint in great power rivalry, we have to go back more than 70 years to the civil war in China between the communists under Mao Zedong and the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. By 1949, the nationalists were losing badly and Chiang Kai-shek had to decide where to take his army.
2: What he wanted to do is he wanted to escape to an area where he could then regroup, ideally to kind of lick his wounds, to rebuild and then to build up the military necessary to retake the vast amounts of territories he'd lost by 1949.
1: James Lin from Washington State University is an expert on the history of Taiwan. He says Chiang Kai-shek's options were limited at that point.
2: He that Taiwan probably had the best capability of defending against the communist invasion. They didn't have the amphibious ability to land a force to take Taiwan. And that turns out to be correct. He escaped to Taiwan in 1949, Uh, set up kind of a government in exile there. And that's basically continued until today. The communists have have never been able to counterattack or to take Taiwan
1: under their control. So for China, Taiwan has always been unfinished business. In the early years, not only did it represent a capitalist regime on the doorstep, but it also claimed to be the real China, not just a renegade province. America threw its support firmly behind Taiwan, calling it Free China, even though it really wasn't all that free. Chiang Kai-shek acted like a dictator, but imposed martial law and tortured his own dissidents.
2: So the US support for Taiwan is really not based upon Taiwan being a democracy or even really free. It was based upon the idea that Taiwan, the Republic of China, provided the best bulwark of anti-communism. It was the, you know, what General MacArthur called the unsinkable aircraft carrier. It occupied a strategic position on the Chinese coast. And as anti-communism became the most important foreign policy agenda for the United States, Taiwan became this incredibly valuable ally
1: for US Cold War policy. In fact, it would take more than four decades for democracy to arrive in Taiwan, And then it wasn't until the 1990s that people got to choose a directly elected president. The period since then has seen fewer and fewer people in Taiwan identifying as Chinese, just 3% in one recent survey. And
2: so a Taiwanese-centric identity began to emerge in the 1990s. And I think that constitutes a threat for Beijing, because it's no longer then about this idea of an unresolved civil war. But really, Taiwanese people are exerting their own identity separate from a Chinese identity. And this is kind of the basis for what Beijing considers separatism, but I think what the rest of the world would consider self-determination. And today, it's very obvious that Chinese people don't want to be a part of anything to do with China.
1: James Lin's parents are from Taiwan. He says people there just want to be left alone. Taiwan's tragedy... That its historical, geographical, and ideological position means that's not going to happen anytime soon. It may only be an island in the East China Sea, slightly larger than Belgium, but its existence is of critical importance to both China and the United States. But Taiwan is 11,000 kilometres from California, so why now is it so central to US foreign policy? Part 2 The Unsinkable Aircraft Carrier.
3: The beginning of America's war with Japan opened very badly for America's Navy. The story of the Japanese bombers that attacked while Japan's statesmen pretended to work for peace in Washington is now history. But it's easier to understand why the Pacific War goes so badly for us when you see the extent. It's of
1: the 1941 and America has been dragged into the Second World War by Japan's attack on Pearl Harbour. It's a huge shock to the United States, which, up until then, believed the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans protected it from foreign invaders. After the Nazis and Japan were defeated, America realised it had to push its defences further westwards, to what's called the First Island Chain – to protect against China and Soviet-backed communist regimes in Southeast and East Asia. Taiwan was and is the linchpin in that chain. And so, for two decades, America had a mutual defence treaty with the island.
0: So the first concrete guarantee was provided uh, back to 1954, in case of the potential military escalation from China towards Taiwan, that United States were able to come in to provide military assistance towards the island.
1: Dr Yu Jie is our second witness and a senior research fellow on China with the London-based think tank Chatham House.
0: Then the second step was the time of 1979, the time of the Taiwan Act, that if China, if Beijing are unilaterally seeking to change the current status quo, and the United States will step in to offer military assistance. What we have now is that Taiwan Act from 1979 up until today. But obviously, that so-called strategic ambiguity has remained within the current debate.
1: Dr. Yu refers there to two central concepts in Sino-US relations over Taiwan the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, and the policy of strategic ambiguity. We'll come back to those shortly, because both flow from President Richard Nixon's decision in 1972 to begin the process of opening up to China. We have been here a week. This
2: was the week that changed the world.
1: That historic moment produced the Shanghai Communiqué, which established the One China Policy, which stated...
2: The United
0: States acknowledges that Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of China.
1: That means Taiwan lost its seat at the United Nations – And by the end of the 1970s, the US had full diplomatic relations with Beijing and only what are described as robust, unofficial ties with Taiwan. But the US has always said the policy only acknowledges Beijing's claim to Taiwan and it doesn't accept or recognise it. China prefers to talk about a one-China principle, which stresses Taiwan being part of China. And there's a world of difference in a word.
0: One China policy means that the United States recognised Beijing as the legitimate government of People's Republic China. And then one China principle means Washington should recognise that only Beijing as the single solo legitimate government representing China within the United Nations, within any other international organisations.
1: By way of assurance to Taiwan, President Jimmy Carter in 1979 signed the Taiwan Relations Act. It promised to sell arms to the island so it could defend itself. It also warned against any force or coercion against Taiwan. But what was left unclear was whether the US would actually come to Taiwan's defence. This is one of the key layers of strategic ambiguity that's been US official policy ever since
0: back to 40 years ago that served the purpose very well. But I think what we have now, it is we have a rising China that potentially challenged the hegemony of the United States and the United States realised perhaps it can no longer just shelve the, the issue of Taiwan but instead do we have to bring more clarity in this issue than anything else. But of course, because both sides have agreed with this Taiwan Act and therefore they can't just unilaterally change the status.
1: In fact, Joe Biden has sent shivers through the international community several times on Taiwan by seemingly undermining the policy of ambiguity, most recently on a trip to Japan.
3: Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are?
1: That's a commitment we made. President Biden is no foreign policy rookie. He chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years, but he's also gaff prone. So, knowing whether policy on Taiwan is changing is causing Washington watchers to scratch their heads.
0: A couple of senior members within his administration tried to work back his comments by suggesting that one China policy still being respected, and the U.S. administration. So, for me, it seems to be this sense of a disagreement within the Biden administration try to work out what is the best way to go forward and I think until they have arrived that conclusion you will always hear different members and saying different things within that administration.
1: One area where the administration has not minced its words is on the military build-up by China what Washington has called dangerous and irresponsible provocations around Taiwan and elsewhere in the East and South China Seas. Only a matter of time before there's an accident or incident, according to one administration official.
2: Part 3 The Thucydides Trap
1: It was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. Written almost 2,500 years ago, the words of the Greek historian Thucydides have cast a shadow over Sino-US relations in recent years. The reason? Many foreign policy analysts believe that, more often than not, the lesson of Thucydides is that, more often than not, when a rising power challenges an existing superpower, war results. And China has unquestionably been rising economically, politically, militarily.
3: So if you look back in the mid-1990s, depending on the service, whether it's submarines, fighters, ships, about zero to four percent of what they had was modern. Right now we have at least 50 percent, and in some areas 70, 80 percent of their equipment is modern.
1: China's capabilities have been transformed in the past two decades leading Beijing to assert itself in world trade bodies, international multilateral institutions and in particular in its own near abroad, making ever more aggressive claims of sovereignty backed by a burgeoning military confidence. Oriana Skyler Mastro is a Fellow in International Studies at Stanford University in California.
3: And then there's also just been a massive buildup in the number of forces that they have. Right. So now China has hundreds of ships, actually, more ships than the United States. And same when it looks at more modern aircraft. So we have a difference in the platforms and the size, the sophistication. And we also have a difference in Chinese training. The Chinese military used to be a very backwards peasant army with barely a sixth grade education and more and more they're recruiting individuals that can work in complex military environments.
1: Dr. Mastro says that even with the buildup of Chinese military forces, it is still true that the US military is significantly more sophisticated. But in terms of Taiwan, China has home advantage. There's just one U.S. air base within immediate flying distance of the island. China has 39. So, what form could a conflict take?
3: Well, there are four main campaigns that the Chinese military seems to be preparing for when it comes to Taiwan. They have more coercive campaigns, like a joint missile campaign. So, this is the idea that they would just lob missiles at Taiwan until the leadership gave in. This is very coercive. They could do a blockade, which they blockaded Taiwan until the leadership of Taiwan uh, capitulated to Xi Jinping's demands. They also have counter air raid campaigns, those in which they're primarily focused on attacking the United States, U.S. bases in the region, and the ability of the United States to project power. And then the fourth campaign is the large scale amphibious assault. Most military experts agree that China can do the other three campaigns. The real debate amongst us specialists is whether or not China can do this fourth one.
1: All these scenarios have been exercising American military planners for the past decade, trying to come up with a solution to what the Pentagon calls anti-access area denial.
3: China has the most advanced cruise and ballistic missile program in the world. So from very early on, there were concerns that China could take out our bases, the region, for example, in an early first strike, hit our aircraft carriers and other platforms that the United States needs to project power, tankers that provide fuel to our fighters. And I think right now the debate is whether the United States should try to fight close to China at all. Or should the United States build up forces in what we refer to as the second island chain, which is the area beyond Taiwan in areas like Guam, Pacific Islands, Palau, those types of capabilities to try to fight a war from farther away. But this debate has not been resolved yet about which is the better approach.
1: The guessing game on both sides makes the entire situation extremely volatile add to that underused lines of communication designed to deconflict dangerous situations and you arrive at a point where even senior us officials believe it's only a matter of time before some kind of military to military incident takes place but all out war
3: i think we have 3 to 4 years But after that, I don't see a scenario in which this war doesn't happen. I know a lot of my colleagues who I respect, who watch this issue as I do, fundamentally believe that there should be things more important to China than Taiwan. And all I can say is that Taiwan is the most important issue to the Communist Party.
1: And Dr Mastro says the Chinese government's approach has widespread support from the public.
3: And they have been really smart strategically when it comes to their military, but also their economic approach and their foreign policy approach to ensure that the costs are not going to be unbearable. The fundamental contradiction remains that Taiwan is de facto... Operating like an independent entity, and China can't live with that. And the United States is tied to Taiwan's defense. So I don't see any way out of that besides some sort of drastic, unpredictable change.
1: The debate over Taiwan's future has been heightened even further by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Could that embolden China? Or is it an object lesson in the risks behind such radical action? Part 4. Taiwan is not Ukraine. At a fundamental
4: level, of course, Ukraine is uh, geographically contiguous uh, with Russia. And uh, by contrast, China and Taiwan are separated by about 100 plus kilometres of water.
1: Andrew Scobell is a distinguished fellow at the United States Institute of Peace.
4: It's a greater challenge for China to try and uh, launch a military operation against the island. And while Russia has been engaged in multiple military actions over the past few decades, around the world might be a slight exaggeration, but certainly beyond their immediate uh, perimeter to include, for example, Syria. China, by contrast, hasn't fought a major conflict since 1979, when they launched an attack against Vietnam, but they also haven't conducted a uh, island landing campaign, aka amphibious invasion, uh, since 1950, when they uh, landed on the island of Hainan.
1: The military calculation is one thing but china also has to reckon with the different strategic and diplomatic position of taiwan compared to ukraine
4: the key difference from the chinese perspective between ukraine and taiwan is you know ukraine is not a member of nato and vladimir putin invaded ukraine on the assumption that the us and nato would not directly militarily intervene you know that proved correct whereas From a Chinese perspective vis-a-vis Taiwan, they assume that the US uh, military will come to Taiwan's aid in any military
1: confrontation or conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Many policy analysts, including Andrew Scobell, believe neither China nor the United States wants war over Taiwan. And that may be another key difference.
4: That's the good news. The bad news is that uh, tensions have escalated in the strait. U.S.-China relations are in the worst place they've been in in many decades. And there's a lot of misperception and mutual suspicion, and that is very worrying. What I'm concerned about is less an intentional act of aggression or war and more a uh, uh, unintended conflict an unwanted war that both sides
1: stumble into. It's hard not to take a pessimistic view when it comes to prospects for keeping the peace over Taiwan. The upcoming 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, at which Xi Jinping will seek a third five-year term, also adds pressure on the administration in Beijing to take a hard line. Added to all that, there is now a vanishingly small prospect of persuading Taiwan into some kind of unification under a one country, two systems arrangement, in the light of crackdowns in Hong Kong and the way in which China is perceived to have reneged on its commitments. So will the US and China go to war over Taiwan? Many commentators cling on to the idea that war would be irrational, a disaster for China and the United States, at a time when both superpowers are grappling with tough economic times. But rationality cuts both ways. Sometimes war is the rational answer to a problem, and both countries are stepping ever closer to the edge. You've been listening to The Inquiry on the BBC World Service with me, Gary O'Donoghue. The producer is Louise Clark-Robathon, the researcher Christopher Blake, technical producer Nikki Edwards, and the editor is Tara McDermott.